Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. Today we're going to be reading a paper that I wrote and that you can read on my blog called J. Gresham Machen, The Man Who Wrote Liberalism and Christianity. And this is going to be the last podcast in my series on liberalism because I think it lays out very clearly what the issues are between classical liberalism and um, classical fundamentalism. And from these two different starting points, uh, we're going to have a very clear way of understanding the contemporary scene, which you know has been a lot of mixing and matching of these two diver- divergent worldviews. Um, I've already tried to talk my way through this paper as a podcast form, and I think that the paper itself, um, I'll do a better job just reading exactly what I wrote. And so that's not my normal way of doing things. Uh, usually I like to re- like to go off of outlines and, and kind of talk off the cuff. But this paper, I think, uh, will, will stand well on its own. And so without further ado, um, let's read. J. Gresham Machen, The Man Who Wrote Liberalism and Christianity. By Josiah Meyer, June 30th, 2010. Introduction. J. Gresham Machen was a man of understated accomplishments, the denomination and seminary that he founded have never been large, yet they have had an influence disproportionate to their size. The book for which he is most well known, Christianity and Liberalism, is short, written in plain language, and has never enjoyed wide popularity. Yet it is among the most important theological works of the 20th century. According to me, I'm not sure how many other people would agree with that, but it is a very important book. Because the thought and life work of Machen flow so clearly from his childhood and education, the first portion of this paper will offer a brief biographical sketch of Machen's life, with special emphasis on the factors that shaped his later theological views. The latter half of this paper will provide a brief summary of Machen's polemic against liberalism in his primary work, Christianity and Liberalism. J. Gresham Machen, The Man Born into an affluent, cultured, and firmly Christian family in the 1880s American South, J. Gresham Machen's early early years positioned him well for his later influence. In his seasoned reflections, he noted that his father, a well-established lawyer, had an enviable library and could boast mastery of the classics in Latin, Greek, English, French, and Italian literature that would put our professional scholars of the early 20th century to shame. His mother, a Presbyterian, was also a bright intellectual, and Machen assures the readers that the brilliance shown in her published work, The Bible and Browning, was only one gleaning from a very rich field. The young Machen was deeply impressed with an appreciation of poetry, of nature, and of the Reformed faith. Machen could perfectly recite the Shorter Catechism at a tender age, and had acquired a better knowledge of the contents of the Bible at 12 years of age than is possessed by many theological students of the present day. His mother, with whom he cultivated a close relationship until her death, was also a fitting companion for the many doubts of the maturing nation, having struggled similarly herself. These doubts seem to have come often throughout her, his childhood and early education, but seem to reach a real climax when, after re- receiving a stellar education, or a stellar under- undergraduate, which included Princeton Seminary, he spent a year in Marburg, Germany. It was in Marburg where his exposure to the pulsating core of liberalism in his day rocked his faith. In Marburg, Machen studied 
mostly the New Testament, but the occasions that he took to sit in on lectures conducted by Wilhelm Hermann were the truly significant events of his time there. Reflecting candidly on his experience, he wrote in 1905, The first time that I heard Hermann may almost be described as an epoch in my life. Such an overwhelming personality I think I almost never have encountered. My chief feeling with reference to him is already one of the deepest reverence. I have been thrown into all, thrown all into confusion by what he says. So much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I have known in myself during the past few years. Herman affirms very little of that which I have been accustomed to regarding as essential to Christianity. Yet there is no doubt in my mind that he is a Christian, and a Christian of a particularly earnest type. He is a Christian not because he follows Christ as a moral teacher, but because his trust in Christ is practically, if anything, even more truly than theoretically, unbounded. Perhaps Herman does not give the whole truth. I certainly hope he does not. At any rate, he has got hold of something that has been sadly neglected in the church and in orthodox theology. Perhaps it is something. he is something like the devout mystics of the Middle Ages. They were one-sided enough, but they raised a mighty protest against the coldness and deadness of the church and were forerunners of the Reformation. Machen later recounts feeling as though that small classroom in Germany was the center of worldwide influence, a place from which a great current went forth, for good or ill, into the whole life of mankind. Almost swept away by it at the time, Machen went through a difficult season of questioning, recorded in part with the, in his correspondence to his mother, before his quest for truth eventually led him to hold the positions of his later career, which will be explored below. Machen's time in Germany gave him a lasting respect for serious liberal scholarship, and a patience for those who are doubting as he once did. The stalwart devotion to the truth and radical commitment to honesty that brought him through this season also gave him a hard edge of intolerance against intellectual and spiritual dishonesty that he would later encounter in those who gave lip service to creeds and doctrinal statements, while secretly exposing liberal doctrines and attempting to oust those who did not concur with them. Let me explain a little bit what I meant by that paragraph, because I think it's a little bit confusing how I worded it. Um, he had a lot of patience for people that were struggling with faith, as he did, and a lot of respect for people that really went through that journey and ended at a different place than he did, espousing perhaps liberal doctrines or espousing um, neo-orthodoxy or something like that. What he had a hard time with, and what I think we need to have a hard time with too, is people that say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a conservative evangelical. Oh yeah, I believe the same thing that you do. When in reality, they deny the, the virgin birth of Christ. They deny that Jesus was the Son of God. They deny that scriptures are inerrant. They deny all the basic tenets. Um, but they were saying that they were conservative evangelical Christians and taking the positions of leadership in denominations, taking the leader, positions of leadership in schools, and then squeezing people out that actually held to the simple, pure faith um, that honestly a lot of the donors of the schools uh, held and a lot of the people in the pews held. Um, so there was kind of this slow takeover um, of liberal thought. And uh, I think liberals, or of Machen's main objection was, look, if you want to believe that, that's fine, but state clearly what you believe and let's have an honest dialogue about it. Um, but that's jumping ahead a little bit. 
He returned to America in 1906 and taught New Testament at Princeton Seminary until 1929. During this time, he published The Origin of Paul's Religion, The Virgin Birth of Christ, Christianity and Liberalism, and What is Faith? All very important books, all still in circulation and uh, still printed today, almost 100 years later, which is a huge testament to an academic book. If it stays in circulation for 100 years, it's a good book. Um, all in defense of Orthodox Christianity. In 1929, despite Machen's protest, the Northern Presbyterian Church, or PCUSA, took actions to make Princeton Seminary more inclusive of the liberalism creeping into the denomination. Machen was convinced that this change represented the death of the school. And I'm sure if he saw what uh, the PCUSA is endorsing and approving nowadays, he would um, not be surprised. Uh, based on the direction he saw it going back then. He left the seminary and founded Westminster Theological Seminary to provide a conservative option for Presbyterians. When this action was followed by the decision to withhold support from Presbyterian missionaries and to found his own mission, Mation was brought before the PCUSA General Assembly in Cleveland in 1934. It was decreed that failure to support the denomination's missionaries was tantamount to refusing communion or any other prescribed ordinance of the denomination. Mation was stripped of his ordination and forcefully ejected from the Presbyterian Church. Uh, so he was basically excommunicated by his own church because of his beliefs and his actions. Mation turned his now orphan seminary and missions board into the Presbyterian Church, or OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, OPC, a denomination that still continues to this day. And I have some good friends that are OPC, and uh, it seems like a really good, uh, really good denomination. Although they've never been large, they, they hold their own uh, in the world. Regle regrettably, the strain, of, the strain of his later years, perhaps combined with some poor health decisions, and uh, John Piper, as he did an autobiography of, of Machen, that actually, um, John Piper's the one that uh, turned me on to Machen. He really makes the, the claim, the, the states that Machen really... He didn't take good care of himself towards the end of his life, and that was probably one of the things that led to the fact that um, on New Year's Day 1937, only one year after the formation of the OPC, uh, J. Gresham Mason passed away at the age of 55. So really, you know, basically in the prime of his life, um, passed away. Uh, but he'd been through a lot uh, with uh, being excommunicated and, and trying to found a new seminary and denomination. And, and really trying to preach um, against the evils that he saw within liberalism. Now let's get into uh, the content of the book, Liberalism and Christianity, and what, it, what he said and what it means. Liberalism and Christianity, overview. In Mason's own words, his aim in writing Christianity and Liberalism was to show that the issue of the church at the present day is not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom between two essentially different types of thought and life. There is much interlocking of the branches, but the two tendencies spring from different roots. According to Machen, the core difference between liberalism and Christianity is that one is naturalistic, that is, it denies the creative entrance of God in connection with the origins of Christianity. Um, so again, one does not believe that miracles happen. While the other is supernaturalistic, or it does believe that miracles happen, from these divergent roots grow two entirely different organisms, distinct in their view of doctrine, of God and man, 
of the Bible, of the person of Christ, of salvation, and finally in their view of the Church. When all has been considered, the primary difference that emerges is that while Christianity is and always has been concerned with the redemption of humanity and the hope of a life to come, liberalism is a distinctly non-redemptive religion with an exclusively this-worldly focus. Doctrine The first great difference between liberalism and Christianity is that while liberals teach a religion that is a way of life, divorced from doctrine, uh, so it's not what you believe, it's what you do, Christianity, Christianity has always been a way of life founded upon doctrine. So it's what you believe that will influence what you do, which is why most of the epistles of the New Testament are... 50, start off with 50% uh, doctrine, at least 50%, and then there's ap practical applications for the second half of the epistles. In support of this claim, Mation turns to a representative text. Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3 So again the text, 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins. This message contains first, facts, or real history, and secondly, interpretation of facts, or doctrine. Let's not be scared off by the word doctrine. It simply means teaching or belief. Without these two elements, inextricably intertwined, writes Machen, there is no Christianity. Thus, the early character of Christians is one of witness. Okay, so let's ex let's uh, just take a minute to explore that. Um, <clears throat> first of all, there's facts or history. Christ died. Um, if this didn't happen in real history, in real space and time, then what follows doesn't make sense. For our sins, that is interpretation of the facts or doctrine, that lies at the core of the Christian faith. So we need to have real history, which goes first, real facts of what actually happened, Secondly, we need um, interpretation of those facts. And you might say, well, yeah, duh, obviously. Um, but uh, the liberal church would say, well, what actually happened doesn't matter. All that matters is that we live a moral life. Um, and historic Christianity would say, no. Um, we believe that we're saved through by grace through faith. And if God didn't become man, die for our sins in real time, then the message, the central message of the gospel, um, everything falls apart. Thus, the early character of Christianity is one of witness. See, for example, a Acts one eight, to a message that um, is said to have life-changing power. According to the Christian conception, continues Machen, a creed is not based upon Christian experience, but on the con contrary, it is a setting forth of those facts upon which experience is based. So again, he's re uh, he's resisting Schleiermacher's um, <clears throat> belief that Christianity and all religion comes down to the feeling of absolute dependence. Uh, he says, no, Christianity is not about some feeling of absolute dependence. It's about facts upon which that experience is based. In fact, the entire concept of gospel or good news presupposes the fact of a definite event occurring in history, which has the power to transform all of human experience. Christians talk a lot about the gospel, and evangelical Christians, um, evangelical, uh, the word evangelical comes from the Greek euangelion, and this, um, it means gospel. 
and gospel means good news. It's like a good news proclamation. Hey, something good happened. Uh, let's spread the news about the good thing that happened. Um, at at root, Christianity is about sharing good news about something that happened in real time in space. Further, it is sometimes objected that doctrine ruins the possibility of a real relationship with God. So you hear this a lot today. Oh, well, I don't care about theology. I just want I'm just I just want to hear about God. Um, I'm not, you know, denominationally bound. I'm just a Christian. Oh, um, don't 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 preach doctrine. Just introduce people to Jesus. But this is contrary to real experience. Human affection, apparently so simple, is really just bristling with dogma. If we says Machen, and if we interpret dogma as meaning facts about a person, then we understand that's true. You know a lot of facts about your friends. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be able to have a relationship with them. And certainly your relationship is more than than your knowledge about your friends. But it's not less than that. You can't really have a relationship with somebody about whom you know nothing at all. Um, not about... Yeah. In the same way that objective facts known about a friend are the foundation for a warm relationship, doctrine is the foundation of the Christian's relationship to and love for God. So we know things about God, and that's how we can have a relationship with Him. And I wrote a paper on this uh, called What Comes First, Doctrine or Life? A response to Rob Bell, really exploring this and um, working it out how, how true it is that doctrine comes first, and that's how we have a relationship with God. We can't just have a relationship with somebody that we don't know anything about. Um, and we can't have a relationship with a God that we don't know anything about. In contrast to Christianity, the religion of liberalism is based on human, universal human emotion and, ex, and human experience that, by definition, is non-historical, non-doctrinal, impossible to proclaim as good news, and is built upon a groundless sentimentality. Again, Schleiermacher is just the feeling of absolute dependence, or other liberals would say it differently, but just basically an emotional experience. <clears throat> God and man. Next heading, God and man. Thus, Having thus defended the importance and centrality of doctrine, Mation moves on to what he believes are the two great presuppositions of the Christian faith, God and man. One attribution of God is absolutely fundamental in the Bible, writes Mation. That attribute is the awful transcendence of God. Although God is involved in the world, he is involved as the free creator and upholder of it, and not as being necessarily bound up within it. If the biblical starting place for God is his transcendence, or transcendence simply means um, being higher or above something else. The biblical starting place for humanity is sin. According to the Bible, man is a sinner under the just condemnation of God. This tragic fact, combined with the terrible transcendence of God, provides the dismal backdrop of historical Christianity, which makes the real historic event of Jesus' death necessary. So the the two doctrines that Mation starts with is that God is holy, that he is above creation, that he is he is not trapped within creation in some way, but he is free and he is above it, and he um, cannot tolerate sin, and humanity is, is sinful, and we are uh, bound up in sinfulness. And so this is kind of uh, the bad news that you need to hear before you can hear the good news. Uh, this provides the foundation or the backdrop for the gospel.
In liberalism, however, God is not a, dist a person distinct from ourselves. On the contrary, our life is a part of His. So this feeling of absolute dependence is part of God in a lot of liberal conceptions. And in some liberal conceptions, it's almost a pantheistic idea that God is is part of human culture. He is... Human culture is God. Nature is God. Um, there, there's a lot of variety in how God is is understood within liberalism. Although expressions of this pantheistic religion are varied, the unifying concepts are the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. That is the con concept of a benevolent deity holding a universal love for all of his children without distinction. This doctrine would not be possible without the removal of the historic doctrine of sin, thus entirely removing the need for a savior and putting humanity at the center of religion. So in order to truly have the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, you'd need to take away sin um, and assume that we're already in a right relationship with God. And we're, biblically speaking, uh, we're not in a right relationship with God. That's, that's the whole point. That's why Jesus had to die. Um, so this this concept of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man seems to just cut um, a huge portion of the essential doctrines out of the Bible. The Bible. The next area of great difference between liberalism and Christianity is in their treatment of the Bible. While both religions agree that the Bible contains much truth that is available to all men everywhere through nature and through conscience, although both these are clouded by sin, the Bible also contains something quite unique. It could be said that the whole of the Old Testament looks forward to one decisive event, which serves as the center and core of the New Testament. That is, the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. According to the Christian view, therefore, the Bible is primarily a narration of real historic events. Although very ancient, the Christian believes that these events may serve as the real foundation of our faith because of 1. the early date of the documents, 2. the evidence of their authorship, 3. the internal evidence of their truth, 4. the impossibility of explaining their origins in pagan mythology, and 5. the confirmation of their claims in the experience of the present-day experience of Christians. So we believe that the, Bible, that the Bible is inerrant, that it points to Jesus, and that it's the Word of God. Far from this lofty view of scriptures, liberalism begins with the assumption that no scriptural power was present either in the events narrated or in the act of recording them in scriptures. So, Jesus never walked on water, Moses never parted the Red Sea, these miracles did not happen according to liberals, and people were not divinely inspired uh, to write scriptures. Uh, these were just human people that were responding to human events around them. Thus, since scriptures are only an expression of religious devotion, it's, it's possible to be dismissive of the Old Testament and highly selective of the New Testament. So the Old Testament, well, it was written a long time ago by primitive people, by Jews, la 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 la. A lot of liberals would, would downplay a lot of the Old Testament, and then the New Testament um, would edit out a lot of portions uh, that they don't agree with, or that they believe you know, are not um, historically reliable for one reason or another. The criteria of selection is often declared to be Christ. So often people will say, well, I, I don't take the whole Bible literally, but um, I take Christ or, or I agree with Christ. Um, just call me a red-letter Christian. That's a real popular phrase these days. Um, I don't need the Bible. Just give me Jesus. And 
it's as though they're using Jesus to edit out the rest of the Bible. Anything that doesn't agree with Jesus has to go. But upon further examination, this claim has seemed to be false, since 1. Virtually all the doctrines most abhorred by liberalism are also present in the teachings of Jesus. So Jesus taught on hell, Jesus taught um, against divorce, Jesus taught against lust, Jesus taught that he was coming again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus taught that all scriptures are inspired by God. Jesus taught on um, the importance and foundational nature of marriage. It's all there in Jesus. Um, secondly, liberals ignore uh, Jesus' approval of the Old Testament. Third, Je liberals ignore Jesus' um, how Jesus commended the apostles' interpretation of his life and work in John 14.26. And finally, liberals even edit the words of Jesus, words and actions of Jesus himself. So if they're editing Jesus, it becomes pretty clear that Jesus isn't the standard, that it's something else that's the standard, that even Jesus needs to be edited by. Thus it becomes abundantly clear that it is not Jesus who is the real authority, but the modern principle by which the selection within Jesus' record of teachings has been made. And I wrote a blog post called, Is It Possible to Speak Too Much About Jesus? In which I said um, that many, it's, um, many, many teachers nowadays would say that, um, w would try to edit Christianity according to Jesus. And they would say, well, you know, Jesus wouldn't have done this, Jesus wouldn't have said that. But when they say Jesus, what they really mean is their version of Jesus. And you have the Marxist Jesus, you have the feminist Jesus, you have the postmodern Jesus, you have the you know, evangelical Jesus, the Catholic Jesus, whatever. Um, and, and people will take their ideal and say, well, and pretend that Jesus was a Marxist and say, well, Jesus wouldn't have have taught, you know, submission to, you know, as Paul said, uh, you slaves submit to your masters. Jesus would never have said that. Um, so we need to take that out. We need, Jesus would never have said this about, you know, women submitting in the home, whatever. So we need to take that out. Jesus would never have said this about hell. So we need to take that out. It's not really Jesus that's, that's editing. It's Marxist ideas that are editing. Um, or it's um, liberal ideas. Or it's... Um, wherever these ideas are coming from. So it's an external, modern pr external principle that's, that's really used to edit the New Testament. Christ is the next heading. Because liberalism and Christianity differ so widely on the presuppositions of the faith, it is not surprising that they differ also on the role of the object of faith, Jesus Christ. As has been said, Christianity holds to the great transcendence of God and the wretched state of humanity the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, in other words, which means we need a mediator, we need a savior. The only solution which was possible was for God himself to come into human history, to solve the problem of sin from the inside out, and to thus make a restoration to God possible, to reconcile man to God. The righteousness of Christ is credited to a person through faith. Thus the Christian religion is basically a religion that makes faith in Jesus Christ its central motif. By negating the two great pre presuppositions of Christianity, that is, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, since they deny that, liberalism has no need of a savior. Also, the liberal um, backs away from the idea of the supernatural making an intrusion into the natural world. So they don't believe in miracles either. Finally, and since they don't believe in miracles, how could they believe that 
that God became man and, and walked on water and performed miracles. Finally, since the life of Christ is so far removed from us in time, the liberal is inclined to see Jesus' life and work as a non-historical myth of the supreme human life. And that's, um, that's a very old view. Uh, most liberals today, neoliberals, wouldn't see, they would see Jesus as a real historical person. There's very few people that would see Jesus as a myth or that he didn't actually exist. Um, and most people today would actually say the New, the New Testament documents, um, although secular people wouldn't say, well, these miracles actually happened, they would say, well, the New Testament's a fairly accurate representation of what what happened in Jesus' life. He was from Galilee. He he preached and taught. He performed miracles. He died in Jerusalem after about a three-year ministry um, and uh, died on a Roman cross around 33 AD, as the New Testament says. Thus, the, the Christ of liberalism uh, directs the gaze of the liberal away from himself and onto themselves in their attempt at morality. So, liberal teaching, as we saw in the podcast on modern thought and on Kant, it really becomes all about ethics, and it's basically a religion of works, trying to be a better person and focus on ethics. Salvation, the next heading. It is in salvation that the great difference between liberalism and Christianity is seen most clearly. For liberalism finds salvation, so far as it is willing to speak of, at all of salvation, in man. Christianity finds it in an act of God. In theological terms, the liberal understanding of salvation comes down to nothing more than works and a hardening of the heart. It is up to the individual, they believe, to do their utmost to imitate Christ, to bring his example of redemption to the world, and to make themselves acceptable to God. In regards to their own sin, the solution that is presented is to focus on the love and love suffering, long-suffering of God, to learn to forgive themselves, that's where that's what I would consider just hardening, hardening your heart, although forgiving yourself is, is valid, but, um, and to let bygones be bygones, in regards to the harm they have caused to others. No atonement is necessary, or possible, because sin is not really as great an offense as historical Christianity has always made it out to be. And liberalism is a great, or it, it seems to fit well for religious people. It doesn't offer a lot of hope for, for the sorts of sinners that Jesus spent his time with, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the, the, real, the people in our society that really know they're sinners. They know they need a savior. Um, it's, liberalism has tended to be really popular with, um, you know, kind of the, the clean, shiny affluent, middle-class type people that don't really think they need a savior. Although apparently good news, Machen rightly identifies this as a terrible doctrine which has no real power to free people from the bondage of sin and denies the existence of a real moral order. Further, there can be no doubt that this is the very form of legalistic gospel which Christianity has battled with and rejected from the very beginning. See, for example, Galatians and Jude. I mean, this is very similar to what Paul was preaching against when he was saying, you have fallen from grace, you who were saved by the Spirit and are now trying to be justified by the law, in Galatians. Finally, the church. As Mation entered into the final chapter of his work, he feels confident that he has established liberalism as a different, different religion from Christianity. This belief is in keeping with the historic Christian conviction that Christianity is its own unique entity, and Christians are a separate entity whose fellowship together as the Church 
gathering around a shared experience of God's grace through Christ, represents an entirely entity totally different from the world. In stark contrast to this, liberalism believes in the universal brotherhood of man, which sees no such demarcation between Christian and non-Christian, and which sees the church only as a place of moral instruction and social connection. So, conservative Christianity sees the church as essential. This is the body of Christ, this is the bride of Christ. This is um, the place to hear about the good news, uh, salvation through Christ alone. Whereas for a liberal, well, to be Christian, to not be a Christian doesn't really matter. Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, we're all brothers. God is the father of all. Um, so it's a very different view of church for the liberal. You just go to church to, you know, hear how to be a good person. But, you know, you can really learn to be a good person on your own, too. Um, church is kind of perfunctory. Mation ends with a passionate plea for the rights of the historic Christianity to maintain the institutions and churches that it has established without being forced to share the space with liberalism. So the battle right here is over Princeton Seminary and um, the Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA in the States. Mation feels that the two religions can't cohabit the same space, and therefore the honorable thing to do is for liberalism, which is the new religion, the imposter, the, the upstart, according to Mation, to form, form its own separate religion, such as the Unitarian Church has done. And the Unitarian Church is um, a church that's just uh, explicitly and overtly uh, accepted liberal views um, without qualms about it. And, and there would be people that would say, well, I'm, I'm uh, agnostic, some even atheist, and they go to the Unitarian Church. Um, and Mason was saying, look, why don't you guys join the Unitarian Church or form the first liberal church of the United States? Um, instead of trying to take over the Presbyterian Church, which is a conservative, was a conservative denomination back in the day. If this alternative is not possible, Mason grudgingly admits that the only other option is for the historic Christians to form their own exclusive fellowship for... to form their own fellowship, because the deep heartfelt longing of the Christian for fellowship of his brethren cannot be ignored, nor should be trampled underfoot by the forced union of the machinery and tyrannical com committees who are attempting a union of the world against the Lord. And you can kind of hear echoes from the latter portion of Mason's life, although he wrote this right before uh, he got excommunicated, but you can kind of see where things were headed. He could see where things were headed. So let's conclude here. The critique raised most vehemently against Mation was that he was a disturber of the peace, a causer of division, a wrangler with words, and the like. However, if Mation's thesis can remain, if he was right, and liberalism truly is a new religion, um, then if anything, uh, he was too, um, too reserved in how he said that. As Mason rightly states, the type of a religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings, or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amid the shocks of life. In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. 
If liberalism truly is what Mason says it is, then it is no exaggeration to lift Mason's great struggles in the 1920s, with Luther's in the 1500s and Athanasius's in the 300s. Once again, the great doctrines upon which Christianity is founded are under attack. Once again, a great majority of the Christian church has fallen into error. Once again, it's time for men of conviction to stand in the gap, to pay the price, and to defend orthodoxy in the grace of God. Often alone, but not alone, because he stands on the side of truth. J. Gresham Mason stood as a new Athanasius defending orthodoxy against the great modern heresy of liberalism. So because this is my last podcast on liberalism, I just want to round up a few loose ends. Um, I want to mention, and I should have mentioned earlier, that... Um, Liberalism came into the states, and people like Mason pushed back uh, and created the five fundamentals of the, the Christian faith, the divinity of Christ, um, virgin birth of Christ, salvation through grace, through faith, uh, pre-trib rapture, and inerrancy of scriptures. Um, Harry Emerson Fosdick uh, preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And he really um, pushed back against that. And, and his work, uh, Fosdick's work, is, is kind of... If you're studying fundamentalism, you need to know... It would be good to just have a look at that paper. It kind of lays out the basic um, uh, claims of liberalism against fundamentalism. And it would be a good counterbalancing against, um, against Mason's work. The last thing I want to say... Um, is Mation, I think, rightly says liberalism is false. Uh, and it, it's able to lay out, even though there's huge amounts of, of diversity within liberalism and, and neo-orthodoxy and neoliberalism, um, these five, or, or, or the, the, the key points that he brings out, are, are still kind of key points that uh, liberals would tend to hold today against evangelicals. And on these points, I think he's able to say conservative Christianity is truer to scripture and truer to right knowledge um, than liberalism is. And so that's one way of evaluating something is to say this is true. Another way of evaluating um, a teaching is whether it's helpful or pragmatic. And over the last nine, over the 20th century, we can see <clears throat> that liberalism is not helpful. <laughs> Um, Fosdick kind of said, like, look, if, if everybody goes to the fundamentalists, the whole church will, will die. You know, we need to reinterpret Christianity in a new light in keeping with modern thought and things like this, or else it will die. The opposite has been true, that, um, you know, the mainline churches, the liberal, or, I mean, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, or the Protestant, or, sorry, Presbyterian Church, um, the Anglican Church, in, in some ways... Um, and the Catholic Church, in large portion, in large way, although that's a bit of a complicated issue, um, have all embraced a lot of liberal doctrines, or have overtly become liberal. And they've seen catastrophic declines in their numbers, um, whereas the evangelical churches that, you know, like the OPC, a hundred years ago were just this tiny branch off of... Um, the mainstream of evangelicalism have grown and flourished and like the Baptists and, and the Southern Baptists and even the Pentecostals and, and the Mennonites, evangelical Mennonites, these churches are, are healthy and strong and are growing whereas the liberal churches historically uh, have been very small and um, 
just an interesting side note. Um, I meant to put this somewhere else, but since we're at the end, I want to mention that both of my my father and my father-in-law um, got saved as young adults, and they both wanted to study for the ministry to be pastors. And both of them entered into liberal seminaries. And uh, now that we've had this podcast series, you know what I mean by a liberal seminary. And both of them, interestingly enough, uh, after a few months said, I need to drop out or else I'm going to lose my faith. And that is the the way liberalism feels when you're in it, especially when you don't have the ability to say, well, this is secularism, this is this is conservatism, or this is biblical uh, truth. And so they both dropped out of, of seminary to save their faith, and seminaries have become faith-killing institutions. Uh, Princeton Seminary, the, the seminary uh, for which uh, J. Gresham Machen was, was fighting to try and keep it conservative, this became the place... Um, well, it's it's famous because that's the place Albert Einstein was uh, developed his his theories at, and so intellectually it became this wonderful institution. But theologically, this became the place where somebody like the contemporary scholar Bert Ehrman uh, lost his faith and uh, began his campaign against Christianity. And and today, um, you know, mo- keeps. Uh, a steady stream of anti-Christian books from a liberal perspective um, going. And um, that is the upshoot of, of liberalism. Um, huge declines in church attendance, uh, seminaries becoming faith-killing institutions where people come in as excited young Christians and pretty soon their teachers are talking about scriptures not being divine, Jesus isn't God's son, and and they're like, whoa, is this this true? And all oh, this is all amiss and stuff like this. And pretty soon people start losing their faith. And then the upshot of it is, and this is kind of interesting, is that I'm actually at the school where my father-in-law had to drop out because he felt like he couldn't save his faith. Or he could, it was going to kill his faith. And uh, the theology department has just closed down um, because liberalism, uh, it kills faith and then it kills, it, it dies because... Um, it it kind of um, people start asking what's the point if there is no God if the Bible isn't inerrant I mean it's interesting to study Christianity as a religion as a human institution but not interesting enough to keep a whole faculty running and so uh, once a, a strong Catholic institution the the seminar the the school that I'm at now um, as a campus pastor is a completely secular institution with no theology wing to speak of, um, which is kind of how liberalism goes. And um, so that's the pragmatic objection. And I just bring it at the end because something can be true and not helpful, but when something is not true and also not helpful, then we especially need to steer clear of it. So uh, I hope that you've enjoyed these insights on what is liberalism. And in the future, it's going to be helpful to speak about liberalism, and especially as we just talk about liberal scholarship, what we're usually going to mean is um, secular studies on Christianity. And uh, there's interesting information that, that can be found out about Christianity when studying it from a secular perspective. Um, but uh, I hope that's helpful to you as you try and pursue God, and sometimes um, the intrusion of liberal thought into uh, the evangelical world continues to this day 
and sometimes that's something that we have to wrestle with and try and understand. Well, Lord, I just want to thank you for the life of J. Gresham Mason and thank you for how he fought hard against uh, error and thank you that uh, truth is important and uh, doctrines are important. And I just pray that you would bless this um, podcast and that it would be helpful to a lot of people out there. In Jesus' name, amen.